Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Real Life Work Podcast. My name is Kevin McManus. Today's podcast episode focuses on predictive analytics. Now, we're not going to go super crazy here and get into these 30 variable war formulas or anything like that, but I do want to give you some ideas for how you can use data to predict the future. All right. So it's all about what can we capture? How can we analyze it? And then based on the results we get from the analysis, how can we use it? We want to be able to predict the future for our processes and, if possible, roll those up into a work system or organizational model. That'll help us prepare for what's coming at us and choose the right strategies to deal with what's coming at us. We won't be as lack to get blindsided and we'll be able to allocate resources more effectively. Now, this content also comes from one of the hours in the second day of my new measurement training and predictive analytics two-day workshop. I'm doing a live version of that workshop on April 24-25 in Montgomery, Texas, as part of the 2023 Taproot Summit. So if you're in that area, I'd love to have you be part of the show on Monday and Tuesday, April 24 and 25. And the goal there is to provide easy to understand and use overview of what can be a complex topic. And in this particular segment of the podcast, we're going to focus on predictive analytics in particular, which includes algorithms. So, for starters, what are predictive analytics? How do people use measures to predict the future? How might you benefit from the use of simple algorithms and data capture tech that exist? So I'm going to share some of that with you here. And conversely, if you don't want to think about work for the next 30 minutes or so, if that's the case, use this content to help you pick a stronger fantasy baseball team. There's tons of data out there relative to fantasy sports and baseball's rolling around, football just wrapped up. And so it's a great way to experiment with how ratios and formulas that produce ratios can be used to predict outcomes relative to player performance, team performance, and even organizational performance. So predictive analytics might even help you understand why your bracket went bust in the early rounds of the women's or men's NCAA basketball tournaments. At any rate, code and formulas make the digital world go round. Code rules. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and please message me with your thoughts and questions at kevin at greatsystems.com. So let's kick this off by taking a look at what are predictive analytics. The use of predictive analytics to begin with is not a new thing. It's more of a new phrase for proven post-World War II practices. So that's quite a while back. You know, that's back almost when the British Empire still controlled half of the world. And a ton has changed since then in those hundred years. Not even 100 years yet, you know, just 80 years. But, for example, coming out of World War II, Robert McNamara and others, along with Dr. Deming, had started using statistical process control, along with correlation and regression analysis, as foundational statistical tools. Now, the challenge is... Business in the U.S. did not buy it. The military did in the States. Business in the States did not. Dr. Deming couldn't sell them. Ford bought them. That's who McNamara went to. And so Ford is doing SPC, but they're doing it in their own little world. But it is predictive analytics. The point is, you can use SPC on any process. It's not just a manufacturing thing. So, 
Back in the 80s, I made use of regression analysis to help predict and reduce monthly plant electrical costs. I was fortunate. At that facility, I had some forward-thinking folks that supervised me. They gave me projects that allowed me to take emerging spreadsheet and personal computer technology. Yes, that is true. And use that spreadsheet technology to start looking for correlations, looking for connections between all these different variables that affected the ultimate electrical cost. And there, you know, there was nine or ten, I think, once you boiled it all down. But once you did the analysis, you'd find that, well, certain variables were much more heavily correlated with the outcome of electrical cost or even electrical demand than others were. And so your formulas would reflect that, and you could focus on getting better data for just those four to five key variables. I'm lucky personal computers and spreadsheets were coming into the workplace. Prior to that, we couldn't do that type of thing. Or we could, but it would take forever. And I know because in my first two jobs, I did a fair amount of production record assembly as a fill-in supervisor or in terms of building standard costs. And it was all by hand. You know, it's correction tape, it's mechanical pencil, and it's a lot of redoing and erasing. But that's all gone. So a whole lot easier today. There's no excuse for not playing around with this type of thing. And actually, you, you use algorithms every day, whether you realize it or not. You use predictive analytics to some degree. The problem is you're missing out on the potential of them. Now, by definition, algorithms are the basic element in any computer program. So we all rely on formulas such as if-then-else statements do while statements and or statements. You know, those are the things that help us access online accounts, use automated teller and checkout services, possibly get into your home, turn on your stereo, operate all types of things if you have wired up your house in one form or another. When it comes to operational excellence future, code is poetry. You know, that's where we get the integration. That's where we can focus our limited key talent on the right things and leave the routine cognitive chores to the bots. That opens your brain up to doing creative stuff, to doing inventive stuff, to going out and engaging folks. It gives you time for improvement. And so what we're trying to do with predictive analytics is to develop models that accurately predict an outcome, and we often call that outcome Y, based on one or more variables, X. Plus, such data serves as inputs into algorithmic management tools that are replacing humans for routine cognitive work, such as dispatchers that assign pickups for Uber drivers. However, the potential does exist for these tools to become futuristic micromanagers. And we'll get into that a bit later as we roll on here through the podcast. But that sets the stage with predictive analytics. They've been in place for a while they're relatively simple, and we already use them to a significant degree. But let's look at taking that situation higher. Let's actually start at using data to predict the future, not just letting algorithms make our life easier. Or predictive analytics even, making our life easier. You know, your, your smartphone knows better than you what you tend to buy each week at the store, and it lets you know if you happen to fail to pick something up and you're getting near the end of the week. No, we want to go further than that. We want to look at how can we use predictive analytics to predict process performance, to evaluate assets, both mechanical and human, and to make better choices as leaders. 
And so to many, Moneyball was simply a baseball movie. But for me, it's a movie about how businesses find and select the best human assets. I talked about this in my Measurement Madness podcast two or three weeks back. Moneyball is about how to use data to make the right decisions on the job. In this case, the job of selecting ballplayers and coaching ballplayers. How do we optimize each transaction we have at the plate? How do we optimize each pitch that we throw if we're a pitcher? The Moneyball philosophy helped both the Red Sox and the Cubs break near century-long World Series droughts. I find that amazing. But it worked. And that and and now it is rolled out to all major sports. That's over 20 years ago. Now, both professional sports teams and the gaming industry use expert-level predictive analytics to predict future sports outcomes. I have a rule, do not bet on sports, but that's just me. Maybe it's because I'm risk-averse. Maybe it's because I realize those folks have some super high-powered analytics in place already. Do I think I'm smarter than them or not? Similarly, major financial institutions use them to test investment scenarios and project future asset and portfolio value. However, there's been much less innovation relative to the financial models versus those in the gaming industry. And I think when you look at the gaming industry, you realize it generated $60 billion in 2022, and it's, that's up 14% over 2021. And now that it's becoming integrated into smart devices, I expect us to be near 20% when we compare 2023 to 2022. So we're getting close to a $75 billion industry, and so approaching $100 billion plus in just another couple of years. Also, it's very interesting to look at how we use analytics in sports because the managers use the analytics to help manage the game. Who do I start? How do I set up rotations? How long do I leave pitchers in the game? When do I take certain players out? How do I position my outfielders? All that fun type of stuff. But it's also interesting to look at how player and team valuation has advanced from an analytics perspective. The average NFL player, believe it or not, only makes $46,000 a year. But the stars go for $50 million a year, as Aaron Rodgers just found out in his most recent contract. So imagine you have to make a $250 million five-year choice. You got to choose how you're going to spend $250 million over the next five years and get a payback. Which player do you pick? How much data do you need? So every year they're refining the player valuation models with new data variables and variable weights. So it must be worth the effort. The interesting thing is to compare the models and look at what they include and don't include as variables to see how much weight they apply to certain variables versus others. That's where the testing makes it interesting. So why don't people use predictive analytics to a greater degree? Is it a fear of math? I don't think so. But there are several generic reasons from my experience that explain why more organizations don't use predictive analytics. To begin with, most of them have little or no process or transaction-specific data. In other words, with each transaction, we're capturing key data. That's how we're populating our data set. And from that transaction-specific data, we can pull out what we want to analyze, and we can look for correlations. We can you know, do all different types of things. We can have the AI help us find patterns. 
The bulk of their limited data collection related to site, business unit, or company aggregate metrics is the focus. Now, there's also vintage silos still in place in most companies. In other words, the number of shared data sets is small. You know, everyone has their projects and their data on their own laptop or on their own phone or in their own special place on the mainframe. And they're not tied to other people's project lists or other people's capacity models or other people's problem lists. Instead, the data sets are split up. Each silo has their own databases. To make things worse, the data is often dirty and it is for sure inconsistent and incomplete because there's a lack of standards relative to how we capture data. Like operational definitions, for example. Does everyone share the same operational definitions? I went through this relative to what is an on-time pickup. What is an on-time start? What's a late start? What's a late delivery? What's a late arrival? What's a late appointment? Those are all examples of cases where you need fact-based operational definitions, quantitative operational definitions to help set up your modeling. And then finally, in the cases where they are capturing data, they're not using lean data capture methods. And in turn, it's costly to capture what they do capture. In other words, they may have to dedicate a person to the capture of data. Not smart in this day and age when smart plugs can capture just about any data coming from a machine if we set it up right with our SCADA or DCS systems. And if we can get our folks to, if we can manage our data in a manner that makes our folks comfortable with being tagged, then it helps us get data on the performance of our people. But we shouldn't be hard, too hard on our leaders. Their busy jobs allow little time for benchmarking and research. Most aren't familiar with the power and influence of Moore's Law. In other words, how quickly technology capability and costs change. That memory density and processing speed double every 18 months. However, that's not an excuse for further delay once obvious cost-effective solutions exist, and they do now. So I'm trying to point them out. I'll share some with you here. But the point is we have to move on from the way we've done it in the past. And just like all the baseball teams had to do with the Phillies being the last team, embrace the technology. And as you saw, Phillies, there they are, moving on up the, the scale now. They were the last to adopt the use of predictive analytics. Now it's a battle of models. But let's not get too crazy yet, okay? Let's start simple. Because often just starting with some of the basic, simple models relative to predictive analytics, you can learn a lot about your work processes, okay? But there are the top five predictive analytics models are pretty common. We just don't think of them as such, and we don't use them to their potential. But they can support our improvement and planning needs. So let's start with the first two, the two simplest ones. The first one's called classification. We see this type of model almost daily in the form of top 10 lists or top 10 lists by genre. We see it in music. We see it in movies. We see it in sports. And some of those lists are pure opinion. They're just percentage of votes. In other cases, they are formulas that take into consideration multiple factors. 
and then use those multiple factors in a formula to create a ranking or earned number of points, and that helps them find their spot on the list. That's what the BPI is. You know, it's a performance index. Most organizations tend to somehow prioritize their needs and challenges. You know, do they just vote or do they use data? Or do they vote and then use data to validate what they did? The trick is to use the right data with the right set of algorithms to create accurate and useful lists. So that's for the first model. It's called classification. And also, I'll just let everybody know at this point, I do include links right in the upper left corner on the podcast page where you can listen to the MP3 directly. You can download the show notes if you'd like to download these show notes, or you can read the show notes on the page where the podcast MP3 is available. You can also go to the Real Life Work Podcast primary page where I've got the player and all the podcasts listed, or you can just subscribe to Spotify, Apple Podcast, some of the other more common ones and have the podcast be pushed to you when I drop them. But that's up to you, okay? I want you to know the information's here if you need it, and I make it very easy to get. That's At least that's my goal. So let's go to model number two. Model number two is called clustering. It's also very common. We see this model used in sports to a high degree. We should use it more in business, but we don't. But people refer to clusters as splits, filters, or segments. You know, how do you, what's your pitching earned run average in day games versus night games against right-handers versus left-handers? Morning games versus afternoon games. You know, how does the East Coast sales team perform versus the West Coast sales team? How do our plants that provide this service compare to our plants that provide other service? We want to slice our data sets many different ways. This helps us find the high leverage change points. It is a form of Pareto analysis. Imagine that you had to reduce the average blood pressure in your town, but they only gave you that one metric to use. It's like, we want you to reduce average blood pressure, but we're only going to tell you what the average number for everyone that gives their blood pressures are each month. We're just going to give you the one average. You don't know where to target your resources. You got to be able to break it down by demographic, break it down by neighborhood, break it down by maybe risk factor. And then that helps us identify which groups are the ones we might want to focus on more with the limited resources we have than others. But that's clustering. Okay. And believe it or not, a lot of organizations don't know what their top problems are or what their top effective strategies or ineffective strategies are. They don't know which groups perform at different levels than others, and they can't explain why. And so you learn a lot just through effective classification and clustering. And you can just do that in Excel spreadsheets with your sort functions. Primarily, it's, that's the type of thing it is, is, is sorting functions. Okay. So more models, let's start looking at algorithms. Now, the more common models are your forecasting and time series models. Forecasting models use historical data and algorithms to help predict future outcomes, sales forecasts, production forecasts, things like that, not weather forecasts. Even though weather forecasts are based on algorithms and on models, I don't know that I would call them a forecasting model necessarily. Maybe they are. I see them more as a systems performance model. 
Now, time series models focus more on how a single metric changes over time. And then there's also an outliers model that helps us quickly find anomalous data. Okay, so where's the funky data? So we don't have to, you imagine we do, people still have jobs where they spend 20 to 30 minutes a day thumbing through paper forms looking for inaccurate information. And on 95 or 97 of the 100 pages they look at, there's no problems. They're trying to find the two or three outliers that exist in the 100-page report. And even though there's only a few outliers, the fact that there's so many pages, so many places to look, there is a high likelihood, 10, 15% at least, based on research, that they're going to miss things. And we've seen this end up in nonconformances. And it's all because you were relying on humans to find things versus, in this case, simple AI. Within all of these three model types are formulas or algorithms. They're not necessarily complicated. Simple algorithms examples include percent change analysis. You know, which sales group is growing the fastest? Which product line is returning the highest percentage of profit? We also look at percentile calculations. You know, organizations want to know, are we performing in the top 10 percentile? They don't want to have to calculate that percentile themselves. So if you, you give them, you give the department a report and say, hey, here's your data. Here's the percentile you're in. That's what folks often like to have. Whether that's good or not, folks like to have it. They manage with that. Plus, formulas help us predict future performance. However, their effectiveness is highly dependent on the type and mix of independent variables that are used to determine the dependent variable. In other words, how many different X's do we use? How do we assign weights to them to come up with our Y predictions? Our why guesses, our why theories. So this all starts conceptually with building theories and then using algorithms to test them. Now, there are a lot of different algorithms that make decisions, computer formulas that make decisions. For example, if-then-else logic code controls account and building access on an hourly basis around the world. Lookup, sort, and find functions are also common in spreadsheets. We just rarely think about them as algorithms. More importantly, we don't have to be perfect before we use algorithms as long as we know their limits. And that's a key thing. Don't expect to have 98% correlation on all key variables before you introduce the algorithm. Recognize they're under development. Look at that correlation percentage and realize that's something like variation. We want to tighten that up over time by improving data, by doing modeling, by identifying which variables have the greatest influence and what the relative weight of those variables are. You know, for example, I've been wearing an Apple Watch every day for about five years. I have some very good Apple Watch data. I have very good data that tests their algorithms. I can tell you which algorithms tend to be much more accurate than others because what they try to do is with activity, they want to project calories burned. They want to project distance covered. They want to project time expended. And that's for starters. And just to do that across different types of activities, you get into some interesting algorithmic differences. So, you know, in 30 minutes, how many calories do I burn and how many miles do I go on the elliptical setting versus the outdoor walk setting versus the indoor walk setting versus the outdoor run setting versus the indoor run setting? All at 110 heartbeats a minute. 
Well, you would think it would be the same, but because of algorithmic differences, it's not. Some still need refinement. So we want to build out our algorithms as we go. Remember, we start with a theory. Here's what I think is the theory. I think these are the three or four things that most affect this outcome. Okay, well, let's go get our data. Let's go get data on those three variables. Let's go get some outcome data. Let's match it up for the time period. Let's see if there's some patterns there or not. A key goal with algorithm design is to build and test asset and process performance improvement theories. First, we must find and prove correlation. Correlation strengths helps us assign relative weight to each variable in the model. That's what we did when we moved from just AP rankings and UPI rankings in sports, where that's just riders voting. Okay, and you can say percent of total votes, you can give weight to the votes, you can say you only have so many votes, but it's still an opinion-based model. When we went to BCS, that's where we started, we started comparing multiple opinion-based ranking systems, but we weren't getting into actual strength of schedules. We weren't getting into win percentages, things of that nature. It was still, at the foundation, an opinion-driven model. So people said, oh, it's the computers versus the people. Well, no, the, the coders just set it up to consider multiple polls versus just one or two. But we moved on from the BCS, and now we have nothing that, I mean, now we've got the group that makes their pick. You know, we've gone back to humans making the final choice, but that's how it is with AI. You know, you should never want the computer to make the ultimate final decision because that heads us towards Skynet. At any rate, we want to use computer simulations such as Monte Carlo to test run this model for thousands of cycles. So algorithms and predictive analytics are now in use by all major sport groups. But believe it or not, the first sport to use formula-based player ratings was chess. That's where the name ELO rating comes from. 538.com makes pretty extensive use of their ELO ratings for professional sports teams. But it goes back to how do I determine a chess player's rating? Now, more recently, we've had wins above average replacement with baseball. They call that war. Now there's a hockey metric called XBAR. We have the BPI in basketball. We have the BCS I just mentioned. A wide variety of different algorithms have emerged, and they're going to continue to change. For example, one of the newer algorithms in professional football is called expected points added per play. And this algorithm actually tries to predict the expected points added for each play based on the play called, the distance and down, who carries the ball, things of that nature. So very interesting stuff. So as I mentioned, the 538.com group perhaps does the best job of using measures to predict the future. It's the, one of the groups I like to benchmark. They got their start predicting election outcomes. That's, you know, 538 electoral votes is how many electoral votes uh, we have in the United States. And so I think they're getting close to 15 years in existence now. I think four election cycles is what we're rolling up on with them. And they've gone well beyond predicting election outcomes now. They're very heavily into sports. They look at science, but it's all about predictive analytics and building models to help us decide where we're going in the future. And, you know, and again, hasn't 
this isn't a new thing. If you've read Frank and Danello Meadows' book about Beyond the Limits, they talk about modeling environmental futures way back in the early 1990s. And so for those of you that are into environmental protection and environmental awareness, and we definitely need to be very much into both, you may want to take a look at what Frank and Danello Meadows were doing way back in the early 1990s relative to trying to let people know that the models do not predict a very good future. And it's just a very another case where we're using independent variables over time to predict future outcomes. Okay, let's bring this to work. Away from sports, we also have algorithms at work as well. For example, cost modeling. If you use activity-based costing and you should at least do comparisons between your current product or service cost structure and ABC, I would do nothing but ABC. I mean, your foundational question is, how do you decide how to allocate your overhead? And there's so many different arguments, but does your data show that the overhead is going to the right processes? Not just the right products and services, but the right processes. So when you come up with your fixed cost, your mixed cost, your variable cost structures, you know, it's just based on someone's opinion. It is actually using predictive analytics, well-thought-out analysis. You know, do you flex your expense budgets based on volume using algorithms? The goal is to adjust results as operating parameters change. Predictive analytics help us develop both better formulas and use better input data. So it's two things. Now, what I like is the first goal is get better input data. Then try to understand what does that data tell us, build theories about, okay, if we end up with these kind of inputs, what does that give us as an output? And then test them with your formulas, with your modeling. The use of predictive analytics helps us know how to change process operating parameters as raw material mix change. And so you could be in an energy production facility and you're doing downstream production of oil or gas and you're getting provided raw material on the front end. It is not always consistent. And so how do you need to adjust your processing parameters to make the best use of the raw material mix that's coming your way? You could do the same thing in food plants. Predictive analytics are requisite for effective asset health and predictive maintenance. Also, their use helps us predict future asset failures, failure rates and costs, and asset capability. So where we're going in the future with predictive analytics, that includes the analysis of workforce engagement factors and engagement paths. So, for example, how do the diff- what are the different engagement factors your different workforce demographic groups have? What's the relative strength of those engagement factors? How do we try to use engagement paths to help engage those demographics with preference being given to their factors? How can we use the relative value of these factors to optimize the number and type of engagement paths we offer so we don't get, have, have too many town hall meetings and not enough social media groups or vice versa. Think about workplace safety. Think about risk estimation on the daily job. How could we use different types of input data to estimate daily task risk more accurately? Jim Whiting does a great job of showing people how you can use different inputs in a risk model to project the current risk level of work. 
but people are slow to embrace that algorithm. It should be part of the work package, especially as you digitize and go to tablet-based work packages. All in staff, in my mind, just based on my 20 years teaching Taproot, everyone in, in, on the team should know how to estimate daily workplace risk. And when we make our individual estimates, the variation between high and low estimates should not be that wide. It's very, very important as a foundation to start the day. So how can we use this risk estimate to better flex our use of core safeguards? So some days you can work from memory. Some days you need a detailed procedure. Some days you need a walkthrough. Some days you just need a talk through. Some days you can just go out there and just start the work. But it depends on the person, the complexity of the job, the nature of the work environment. There's a lot of different factors and you can quickly assess that with today's technology and it will at least indicate to you, well, the algorithm thinks, based on what you've told us, this is pretty risky work today. Now, you get to make the final choice in terms of how you approach it, but that's what the algorithm thinks. It's the same thing that they're doing when they pick the national champion in football prior to the playoffs with the BCS. Here's what the polls say. What do we think? Now we just do that for picking teams that go into the playoffs. Then they play it off. Just interesting stuff, fun stuff. All right, so where are we going in the future? We need better use of predictive analytics to manage work process variation. We don't give work process variation much thought at all. Instead, we just try to pad the allowable waste levels to accommodate what we generate. If I can get enough of a bumper in my budget to cover my daily rework and waste, then people stay off my back. But then we're saddling the product or service and eventually the customer with that bumper. You know, it's interesting. If you think about, you've got a car, you've got a garage. And every day you go in and out of the garage. And you kind of notice, you know, it's a pretty tight garage and I do scrape on the side once or twice. So maybe I need a bigger garage. Well, how big do you need to make it? How big do you need to make it so you never scratch the sides? Maybe we need to remember one thing. We don't, maybe we don't need a wider garage. Maybe we just need to get better at driving the car. You know, process control and optimization is not possible with just the use of opinion, estimates, and memory. Already, we have the potential to capture more data each day than we need. How do we select the right data to capture? How will we use that data that we do capture? How do other groups currently use our data that they capture? And this is the most interesting piece. As organizations agonize over, do I tag people or not? As soon as you hit the Walmart parking lot, boom, the phone's starting to go off if you've got your notifications on because you crossed into their geozone. And they picked you up on the phone. And they said, oh, yeah. Here's old Kevin. Kevin just pulled into the Walmart parking lot. When Kevin comes to Walmart, here's the things he usually buy. Here's the order that he usually goes through the store because we've actually mapped his path that he usually takes through all the different Walmarts. And we can tell that if we push him ads in a certain sequence... He'll be more apt to pick up things that sometimes he buys, sometimes he doesn't. 
And in other cases, those ads will remind him, because he doesn't like to use a checklist even though he needs to, those ads will remind him that maybe, you know, hey, you do need to remember, you got to grab that. And he'll appreciate that, and that'll give him a good feeling about the use of our of us pushing ads to him as soon as he hits the Walmart. But that's where it's going. And sometimes folks tell you that they grab your data. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they tell you what data they capture. Sometimes they don't go into the details. So for example, when you come across websites and they say, oh, you forgot your password? Well, why don't you just sign on with Google or sign on with Facebook or sign on with something else? Well, when you do that, you're opening the portal to your contacts, to your content on those platforms. So when I work on Google, and I use Google a lot for a lot of different things, I have to recognize, well, Google knows a lot about me. I hope they're not using it for bad. I don't know how they could, but (sighs) there's always those issues, right? Ethical issues abound. What options are we willing to employ to capture data? Do we tell people or not? When do we challenge them? They're already in play, and some are court-tested, but not that many, and it's going to vary by state. It's going to vary probably by state and product or service. Individuals will have to decide what's right long before the legislation catches up. I mean, you've got surgical teams already using RFID tags to study surgical team positioning in the operating rooms. There's super uses of this stuff if we can get beyond the the fear factor of, whoa, if you tag me, you're going to always know where I'm at. Well, it could be that way already. You know, our predictive analytics future includes both smart plugs and smarter phones. And smarter phones have only been around about 10 years. You know, I've watched enough of the Terminator movies enough times. It brings to mind Skynet, you know, where the machines take over. Recently on LinkedIn, I shared an artificial intelligence trust survey that I came across. The results were intriguing. So, for example, some prefer a human doctor versus an AI doctor. Of course, I say that like I'm a person who prefers an AI doctor. And based on my experiences with general practitioners in a variety of communities, I feel I would get a more well-rounded question set that has more clear diagnostic paths with an AI doctor than I would with a randomly selected general practitioner. But maybe I've just been unlucky. Now, doctors already use question sets to help them with diagnosis. I do like the artificial intelligence doctor's knowledge base. Very broad. Retrieval speed is exceptional. But again, the human has to decide if they accept the recommendation of the bot. Plus, until we can program in emotion, algo managers will have none. These digital managers often discount special conditions in favor of an easy-to-apply standard rate. Computer programs don't cry digital tears when they trigger the release of 17,000 termination letters in one day. I think that's what Facebook did today or yesterday. Meta, sorry. If certain criteria are met, now I'm going to be banned for a week. The program executes the corresponding choice. That's the way algorithms work. Criteria are met, boom, there's the choice. It's why even so someone has been debt-free for 20 years based on the algorithms that determine whether you are loan-worthy, no loan for you. 
So there's where some algorithmic adjustment is needed. The potential, the current potential lack of algorithmic transparency is what concerns me the most. The general public cannot easily discover what variables make up a given formula and it's even harder to change them. Additionally, predictive analytic data sources are rarely available to the public. Okay, it's like, well, okay, you told me the formula, but what data did you use? What was your sample group? What data did you use to create your algorithm? Well, it's from this 30-person study conducted back in 1990 in the plains of Arizona. But it'll apply to the globe in present day. See, you got to be careful about where does the data come from that is used to build the formulas that are used to test the models. Programmers, human or otherwise, can create code to hide the evidence. I don't mean to freak everyone out, make people not like programmers. A lot of us are programmers. I do it daily. But code can divert one's attention towards what some prefer that you see, like the shiny keys, versus what you need to see which is the right data to help you make better decisions. So that's why I think it's important to understand the basics about how algorithms are built and tested, and it's not complicated. This awareness, along with personal practice, are our best defense against algorithm and predictive analytics misuse. We can't have the code, but we can learn how it works. And you've got first and second graders out there, if they're... if if they're in good progressive learning environments, then they know how to code already. They know what an if and else statement is. They can use that to program their own little video games. Yo, coding is an elective in your Weeblo's Arrow of Light Award work for 10th grade boys and girls in scouting. For adults to be not as up to speed as the seven and eight year olds when it comes to coding, you might want to just pick up a little bit. and It's not complicated. Explore the algorithms that influence your life. That's one of the most important things. So, please connect with me on LinkedIn. That's how you can best keep tabs with the new things I'm pushing out there on a very regular basis. If you want more information on this topic, you can message me. Like I said, in the post, I'll have a link to the podcast page. On the podcast page in the upper left corner, you'll find a link to the MP3. If you want to go straight to the audio file, you'll also find a link to the PDF of the show notes. And then finally, please keep in mind that this content comes directly from one of my workshops that I'm doing on April 24. Now, the exercise for this particular content would be build an algorithm for either your personal life or your work life. You know, first of all, think about what would my inputs be? What theory am I testing? What would my formula look like? And then how would I test my formula? But that would be the exercise. And so you'd think about it as an individual for five or 10 minutes, and then the group would pick one to work on. They'd develop it out as a group in 15 to 20 minutes and then share it. And it's a good critical thinking, creativity type exercise that brings in the initial elements. You know, what are your inputs? How am I going to determine their relative weight? How will I build those into a formula? And then how will I test my model?
And then how will I use my data for good? Okay, so also, please check out my Real Life Work podcast. I'm up to 15 episodes, I believe I am right now. I have a Great Systems YouTube channel. All the videos there are free. I think I'm up to about 70 videos and maybe 18 hours or so. And the videos in the playlist provide audio and video support to three of my most popular teacher teams performance improvement workbooks that you can find on the Kevin Robert McManus Amazon author page. But it's Kevin at greatsystems.com. If you ever want to get in touch with me or just message me through LinkedIn, Facebook also works through great systems, but I'm most common on LinkedIn. Anyway, have a super day. Explore the analytics and algorithms that affect your daily life. And most importantly, keep improving.